Amen. What a blessing to be with everyone today, just to be able to celebrate God's goodness. Um, many of you know that uh, when I came here, I had been a senior pastor already. Actually, about 13 years ago, I had the opportunity to go to a small church in the very southeastern tip of Pennsylvania. And honestly, I think they had to be incredibly gracious for them to allow me to be their pastor at that point, because I had never done it before. Uh, we saw great fruit, but I would say this. None of it happened except for the other people that were there to kind of stand alongside and to work and to really be a team. Uh, and the ministry did flourish, I think, because of that. I say that just to say that I am blessed today because one of the families from our church that was there with us the entire time is here visiting with us. Bob and Dorothy, I am so glad you guys could be with us today. Actually, you guys are familiar with the role of a drill sergeant, not to say that Bob was my drill sergeant, but the role of a drill sergeant is to break the individual down so they can build them back up and they can actually be good at what they're supposed to do. I think I was already at that point very, uh, I wasn't good at being a pastor because I had not been one yet, uh, but God used that time there to help me learn ministry and I'm very grateful for that. So good to have you guys with us. Uh, this morning. Last week we had a great time of celebration. I know that I shared with you guys through some uh, email stuff and just some things that I posted on Facebook as well, but we had a total of seven people last Sunday give their hearts to Christ. And of course, uh, that is really one of the highlights for a pastor is to see people come to Christ. And I will add that with the high of having seven people come to Christ, uh, later in the week I was talking with someone, and it was a, a lady who they've been coming to the church primarily through the Awana program, and the mom said, what, what do I need to do to get my daughter baptized? She's given her heart to Christ. What can we do to make that happen? Uh, so for me, this is a very exciting time in the church. It's a time where we ought to be rejoicing over the fact that God is faithful and he continues to reach into people's lives and to bring hope and redemption to those who need it the most. Uh, I will tell you that as a pastor, this is what we serve for. This is what we live for, to see lives being changed. This morning, I want to introduce a new series to you uh, that is entitled Practical Christianity. It's dealing specifically with what it looks like for us to live as Christians. Um, while it should be incredibly beneficial to those who have recently made decisions for Christ, I would also add uh, that I believe it should be beneficial to those who have been in Christ for a long time already. The unfortunate reality is that many people who receive Christ fail to grow in their new relationship with him so that uh, basically we end up seeing people who were, were the same people when they got saved and a year down the road, two years, five years, ten years down the road, they're still fighting the same battles and they haven't necessarily experienced the transformation which God himself makes possible. I was talking with a group of students this week and as we were talking, uh, we were on this subject of what a, a saved life looks like and it ought to look 
look like a transformed life. The things that we did before coming to Christ should not be the things that we do now that we are in Christ, but rather when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, there ought to automatically be a transformation that begins. Now, I'm not saying that it automatically happens and everything is done in the blink of an eye, but rather that transformation begins and the Holy Spirit will begin to transform everything about our lives. I do wonder sometimes if some of the reason that we often struggle to see real change is that far too many preachers, myself included, spend great amounts of time preaching on the abstract ideas about Christianity. Uh, We focus on theology often more than the transforming work of Christ in those who have found Christ. Now, I also will add that that theology and those abstract ideas are important. It is important for us to know the truths of Scripture and how they apply to us. Pastors often can accurately tell you that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And guess what? You need to know that. We need to know that. Uh, We know that Jesus is both fully God and he is fully man, yet he absolutely did not have a sinful nature. We talk about a sacrificial system and we give glimpses of saints from the past uh, who lived thousands of years ago and we use big impressive words like justification and sanctification and regeneration. But then we ask ourselves, so what does that have to do with me? I will tell you that it is important. But I'm one of those guys, sometimes I just need you to get really direct with me. There are times that my wife will drop hints to me And she wants me to do something, but dropping hints is not enough. I need you to be direct. I need you to tell me this is what we must do. This is what you must do. There have been times we'll be riding down the road and Linda will say something like, hey, you know, when we get home, we really need to get the laundry done. Cool. What I just heard is when we get home, we, that means Linda's going to be a part of this. So she needs to get the laundry done. Okay, that's fine. Go ahead. And then I come home and I'll sit down on the couch and she's looking at me like, did you not hear me? Sometimes I need someone to be very direct. And the purpose of this series over the next several weeks is to be a little more direct, to address some of the things that ought to be present in the life of every one of us who call ourselves children of God. We're going to look at some of the issues that maybe sometimes we don't like to talk about, but we need to talk about. Issues like personal integrity, sexual purity, accountability, self-worth, offering forgiveness to others, and good stewardship. And when I say good stewardship, it's not just about giving your tithes faithfully, but rather it is the way we handle what God has blessed us with. 91% of Americans live in debt today, and it's because most of us have not been very good stewards. And unfortunately, the numbers inside the church are not all that different from those outside the church. Today, I would like for us to kind of begin with the foundation for this series, beginning with the key verse that will be used throughout the series. And if you would, it's found in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. You can turn there. I think it will be on the screen as well, or it already is. Reading from the NIV, this is what it says in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? 
to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I will tell you that question that's right there in the middle, what does the Lord require of you, is a question that every one of us ought to be asking. It's almost like taking a job and you didn't really get the job description. You didn't really know what you were supposed to do. So we need to ask the question, Lord, what is it that you require of me? And he answers the question for us. So you're a child of God. What does God expect of you? According to our passage, we must act justly, we must love mercy, and we must walk humbly with our God. But what does that mean? Let's begin with this idea of acting justly. In the New Living Translation, it's worded a little bit different, calling us to, instead of act justly, to do what is right. But what does it take for us to act justly or to do what is right? How do we get to the point where this acting justly becomes almost natural to us? Certainly, if we are to act justly, we must first overcome temptation. One gentleman commented, I wouldn't be tempted if temptation wasn't so tempting. Oscar Wilde, an Irish writer from the 1800s, described it with these words. He said, I can resist anything but temptation." A story about a little boy in a grocery store, I believe, illustrates the nature of temptation. The boy was standing near an open box of peanut butter cookies. Now then, young man, said the grocery store owner, as he approached the young boy, what are you up to? Nothing, replied the boy. Nothing. Well, it looks to me like you're trying to take a cookie. Oh, you are so wrong, mister. I'm trying not to. You know, as long as we live on this earth, there will be times that we face temptation. You may have been a Christian for 70 years. Temptation will still come your way. Although every generation seems to think that their temptation is worse than the previous generation, the truth is, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, There is no temptation that has seized you except that which is common to man. Which means, I know, we look at our kids and we think, well, they've got stuff that we never had to deal with. Actually, the truth is, we've been fighting temptation since the moment Adam and Eve ate of that fruit. Temptation is something that will exist no matter what happens until the day that Christ returns. Now, when the day Christ returns... We'll no longer have to deal with it. We'll no, remember a few weeks ago we were talking about what will be missing in heaven and we talked about the fact that temptation and sin will not be present in heaven. What a great thing to look forward to. But until then, guess what? It's going to be present. According to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus spent 40 days in the desert. He was fasting and he was praying. If anything, you would think that was a time of intimacy with the Father. If there was ever a time where he would not be vulnerable to temptation, this would be it. But this is not the way that it worked. Actually, it was during this time that Satan comes and basically he begins to tempt Jesus. And as he tempts him, Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who was perfect in every way, he had to face temptation. If he had to face temptation, 
What is to make us think that we would not have to face temptation? So what do we do? Is it hopeless since we're going to be tempted anyways? Does God require us to act justly, calling us to an impossible task, knowing that the temptation is going to be there? And the answer is absolutely not. A little bit earlier, I quoted from a verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Actually, it was only the first part of the verse. Let me read it to you in its entirety. It says this. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Let me point out three great truths from this single verse. The first is the fact that God is fully aware of what we face. Maybe at times you've had to go through some really crazy things in your life. It's likely that those crazy things have affected your attitude or they've made it more difficult to leave things from your past behind. Maybe the thought has entered your mind that other people just don't know what I've been through. You know, sometimes we worry a lot about what other people think. And we look at our lives and maybe we see some of the junk that's there and we think, well, what do other people think of me and the fact that I'm not as far along? Sometimes we almost can excuse our continuing in sin with the idea that, well, but I've been through things that other people haven't been through. They just don't know. They don't understand. Well, let me tell you that God knows everything that you've been through. He knows the baggage that you carry. He knows the times that you've had to struggle. He knows the temptations that you've had to face. He knows the pain that you've experienced. When other people have said things that were unkind about you, when you've had to deal with the rejection, maybe of someone that you loved or you cared about greatly, God knows all about the things that were there. But he is patient with you. According to 2 Peter 3.9, we are told that he has always been patient with you. Know that he will be faithful even if it takes you a while to reach that point that you are faithful. Because it's just who he is. The second thing that we see in this verse is that God will limit the temptation which you face. It doesn't mean he's going to take it away. It would be nice if he would. It would be nice if we just didn't have to worry about temptation anymore. In fact, often I've wondered why God doesn't just make it easy for us after we surrender ourselves to him. The reality is, if God made it easy for us, there's a good probability we wouldn't need to lean on him so much. God doesn't remove the temptation, but he does limit the amount of temptation that can be given. Remember, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. There is a line that Satan himself cannot cross. God knows what you can handle. Now, I I will confess that sometimes I question God's evaluation of me. There are times that God, he says, I will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And I'm thinking, God, I'm already at that line. And he says, no, we can go a little bit further. And sometimes I believe that God's expectation of me is, actually, most of the time, God's expectation of me is much, much higher than my own expectation. I don't have what it takes 
sometimes to walk away from temptation. But it's in those moments where I recognize that my strength is not what I need to depend on, but it's his. I need to know that his strength is what will hold me up. I'm reminded of a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In those moments where we realize we don't have what it takes on our own, we are forced to depend upon him. Our weakness is actually a great thing. When you think you can do this all by yourself, the odds are you're probably not going to call out to Christ. But we must always be seeking him. He is the one who can provide for us. The last point from 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that I will share with you is that when you are tempted, even though it may be difficult, God will always provide a way out for you. Remember the question that I asked earlier? Did God call us to an impossible task? Did he set us up for failure? Was he setting us up for this impossible thing saying, you must act justly even though I know you can't? And the answer is absolutely not. But I'll also add that if you plan on overcoming temptation without the help of God, you will be disappointed. You see, he is the one who gives you the strength in your weakness, and he is the one who makes a way for you to get out of it when it feels like there is no way to get out of it. You do not have to be enslaved by sin. I know some of us disagree on this issue. Some of us believe, well, you know what, I'm I'm a sinner, and I'll always be a sinner, and no matter what, I can't leave sin behind. I'm going to push you on a theological issue here, just for a moment. If you were to focus really, really hard just for the next 10 seconds, I mean, really just focus in on Jesus, do you think for those next 10 seconds you could live without committing sin? You don't have to verbally answer, but I just want you to think about it. We all know that the answer is yes. If I really intently focused on Jesus Christ for the next 10 seconds and nothing else, pushed all the other distractions aside for the next 10 seconds, could you live without sin? And the answer is yes. Well, if you could do it for 10 seconds, do you think you could do it for the next 60 seconds? Okay, maybe we could do that. Well, if you could do it for the next 60 seconds, could you do it for the next five minutes? I mean, I know we're kind of stretching ourselves here. If you can do it for any moment in time, knowing that your strength is found in him alone, he can set you free from sin today. We call that entire sanctification. And it's a big word again. I just talked about how sometimes we use big words. But the reality is we can choose to walk away from our sin. We don't have to be enslaved by it for the rest of our lives. God never intended that for his people. God has made a way for us to be set free. And as we are set free, we will act justly. The second part of what God requires of us in Micah 6.8 is for us to love mercy. Now I will say, and we talked about this a little bit in our midweek stuff uh, over in the choir room, I will say that most of us already love mercy. This one, it sounds really easy for us. 
But that's mostly true when we are the ones receiving mercy. Not so much when we're the ones giving mercy. When you get pulled over by a police officer and he, you know that you've been speeding, you know that you've been caught, and he comes up and he says, you know what, I'm just going to give you a warning this time. You love mercy. When you show up late for a meeting or you show up late for class or maybe you didn't turn in an assignment on time and the person that you're supposed to meet with or the teacher looks at you and they say, you know what, I forgive you. I'm not going to hold it against you. You love mercy. When you say something unintentional yet inconsiderate, but the offended individual chooses not to hold the offense against you, you love mercy. So maybe this loving mercy thing isn't so hard. Or maybe it is. What about when you are the offended party? What about when an individual has caused you great harm? Do you still love mercy? Matthew chapter 6 verse 15 says that, But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I got to tell you, that, that's a really hard one. It's a hard one primarily because of the fact that we're somewhat held accountable because of what someone else did to us. Now, the thing is, it's not really true. We're held accountable because we held on to something because we weren't willing to forgive. Um, we had uh, an individual in a, a former church who was a very good guy, an individual who as a young man had made some poor choices. One night he and his cousin went out for a drive and while they were out uh, he was showing off what he could do in the car and he ended up having a car accident and in the process his cousin was killed. Every Sunday moving forward this young man who was driving the vehicle sat in church so did his uncle, the father of the boy who had been killed. No doubt this individual carried incredible guilt for his choices on that night. But of course, he wasn't the only one who paid the price for that. That family grieved for a long time. Years passed and this man became a good godly man. I remember sitting down with the uncle one day and he shared the story of his son's death with me. He shared how grateful he was that the cousin who had been driving had been able to succeed. But he admitted that often it was a struggle when he sat in church and he looked over and saw the cousin and not his son. But he added this thought. He said, if I can't forget, forgive him for an act which cost me my son's life, then I probably shouldn't expect God's forgiveness, something that cost his son's life. You know, I think sometimes we love the idea of mercy when we are on the receiving end of it, but not so much when we are on the giving end of it. I want to be able to tell you that I would be able to forgive someone if it cost my son's life. I want to be able to say that I would forgive them. But I'm not 100% sure that I would. See, loving mercy is not just when you receive it, but when you give it 
I told you a minute ago in acting justly that we need to depend on God's strength. If I am genuinely going to love mercy, I still must depend on God's strength. In those moments of brokenness, I need his strength to make up for where mine is not. I need his mercy to show through so that the people who are hurting around me, they can feel his presence. We sang that song, Be Thou My Vision. I want the eyes of Jesus. I want to be able to look into the hearts of those around me and and genuinely be brokenhearted for them, even if they've caused me harm. That is the mercy that he calls us to. The third point that we see in Micah 6, 8 is that God requires that we walk humbly with our God. Let me suggest to you that although this is the last piece of instruction which God gives in this particular passage, it is perhaps the most important piece of instruction. You see, when you walk humbly with your God, it enables you to act justly and to love mercy. You see, to walk humbly with your God is to become fully surrendered to his leading. And this means that you do things God's way instead of expecting God or others to do things your way. And this is where that loving mercy all of a sudden comes into reality. When I am surrendered to him, I trust that he is in control even if things don't work out the way that I want them to. When God is in control, when I am surrendered to him, he puts me where I need to be and I simply obey. All of a sudden, those things seem more possible because he's the one in charge. How does this happen? The writer of James tells us that we are to draw near to God and he will draw near to us. Walking humbly with our God begins with us drawing near to him and simply getting to know him. Have you ever spent so much time with somebody that you began to think like them? You began to act like them? You even began to talk like them? Some would say you even began to look like them. Have you ever known someone so well that you could complete their sentences for them? Well, that's the kind of intimacy that you can experience with Christ. And you know the tools for such a journey, all of us do. We ought to spend time in God's word. I'm going to tell you, if you do not have a regular time of, of reading God's word, doing devotions, then you need to make a time for that. I told you I was talking with some students specifically about this issue of a transformed life earlier this week. And one of the things we talked about is you need to be intentional to get into God's word. For me, I'm a morning person. I do much better in the morning So that makes sense that that's when I'm going to spend that time in God's word. Some of you are not morning people. You could tell everybody you're a morning person. You could say you're going to start reading the Bible at six o'clock every morning, but everybody knows you're going to sleep through it. So for you, that's not the best time to do it. But don't be random and just say, well, you know what? I think I'm going to read the Bible more this year. Awesome. So what's your plan? Put a plan in place so that reading scripture becomes a priority to you. Each of us is different, but each of us has that need to spend time in God's word. Each of us has that need to pray on a regular basis. We know that we're called to pray without ceasing, to pray continuously, but it does value us to have some intentional times where we have set aside just for you and me to be able to pray. You don't need to have anybody else. You don't have to have your eyes closed all the time. You don't have to have your hands folded. Uh, Probably one of the best times for me throughout the years to pray has been when I've been riding in the car. Well, if I close my eyes praying while I'm driving, we got a problem. 
The point is, it doesn't necessarily have to be just like everybody else does it, but we have the opportunity to pray and to simply say, God, you do what you need to do in me. I encourage you, if you really want to experience intimacy with God, get in and serve. Get involved with making a difference in people's lives. Jump in there. You look around you at church and you say, well, what needs to be done? And whatever it is, jump in there. Don't worry about stepping on someone's toes. Just jump in and help. You serve along with the rest of the body of Christ. And what happens is often it gives you an opportunity to sort of experience some things that maybe you never experienced before. This trip we just took to Haiti was such an incredible blessing. The young men and women who went, they, I will guarantee you, they're... There is a change in some of those individuals already. And it's because they got in and they served. Serving Christ is incredibly valuable. As you draw near to God, we are promised that he will draw near to you. Then as you experience this intimacy, let God lead you. Give up the reins. Let him be in charge. There may be things that you used to do that you no longer do. They no longer have a place in your life. Obey the Spirit when he tells you to leave it behind. There may be something bigger than you've ever imagined that God calls you to do. It's not just about leaving something behind, but maybe something that lies in front of you. And God says, you know what, I really want you to do this. And you're thinking, oh, no, I couldn't do that. And then you remember, it's not by my strength, but it's by his strength. He is the one who makes us able Obey the Spirit when He speaks to you. Whatever it is that God calls you to do, walking humbly with our God basically means we let Him take the lead. You ever been for a walk with somebody who was really important? Somebody who had great experience, someone you really respected? I remember the first time I was called to go speak at a camp. It was in Kannapolis, North Carolina. And I was uh, one of two guest speakers for the week. And the other one was a guy who, uh, he basically, you might consider him somewhat of uh, uh, royalty in the Wesleyan church. His name is Norman Wilson. He had been the voice of the Wesleyan Hour, which was a radio program that uh, basically it's been on the uh, air in... Hundreds of countries, I think. It's, it's been all over the place for years. Actually, he had been the only voice of the Wesleyan Hour. He was the adult speaker and I was the youth speaker. I got to tell you, I felt really intimidated. We went to that first meal and I can remember uh, him saying, Mike, come on over and have a seat. And I'm, I'm sitting down and I'm thinking, I don't know if this is the right table for me. And it's because of the fact that I had such great respect for him. As such, I tried throughout that week to learn everything that I could from him. He gave me tips on how to present things, and I actually would pull out a notebook and I would write things down because I wanted to be able to to learn from it. Uh, We would talk about the messages that were brought before and after. I would tell him what I was going to be preaching on. He would give me tips, and uh, it, it was so beneficial to do that. You know what would have been really foolish? Would have been for me to sit there with him, this experienced evangelist who had done this basically all of his life, it would have been really foolish for me to stand there and say, well, actually, there's a better way to do it. That's not walking humbly. When we walk humbly with our God, what we are saying is, God, you've been doing this for a really long time. You know the bigger picture. 
You know the best way to do things. So Lord, whatever you lead me to do, I want to I walk about a step behind you. I want to follow you. I want to be able to go wherever you want me to go. As children of God, we must always realize that he is the one who is in charge. We need to be willing to follow. Follow closely behind, but allow him to take the lead. And as we do, God will enable us to act justly and to love mercy. But it begins by getting to know him. My prayer is that today everyone in this room genuinely does genuinely does walk humbly with your God. I'm telling you, every one of us here today, when we do walk humbly with our God, it will change the way we live our lives. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you, we know that today is kind of a different message as we lead into a series on um, what it's like to live the practical Christian life. It's kind of more laying the groundwork. This groundwork is important. Lord, some of us, we would call ourselves Christians, but the truth is we have not walked humbly before our God. Some of us, even though we come to church every Sunday, we live our lives as if we are the ones in charge. We don't act justly. We don't do good. We live like we're not even saved. We don't love mercy. We love it when it's for us, but not for other people. And sometimes it's hard for us to let things go, to forgive those who have wronged us. Yet today, Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would truly put us in a place where we can fulfill what you require. Lord, I pray that you would help us to genuinely experience intimacy with you. Maybe some of us today need to start new habits. Lord, I pray that you would impress it upon our hearts that every day we would set aside time specifically for you. Maybe there are some of us here today who need to forgive someone who has wronged us. There's been an offense and we've held on to it for a long time. And Maybe even the offending party has moved on, but we continue to carry that baggage. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love mercy today. And to genuinely release the pain into your hands. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do good. We cannot do it on our own. Our strength is weak. But Lord, you are strong. Make us the people you want us to be. And we'll give you praise for what you do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, I will tell you that today is also different in another way. We have... Uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, we have a local church conference that follows immediately after this service. Uh, the second service has been pushed back a half hour to allow for additional time. So probably in about five to seven minutes, we will uh, begin our local church conference. And really what the local church conference is, we vote to put people in different positions of authority. Uh, we also approve the budget. And along with that, uh, in many ways, what we do is communicate to the church, this is the ministry that's taking place. Specifically, when we get to the budget, which is actually in next Sunday's portion of the meeting, uh, today we will be voting primarily on uh, some board positions, people who will lead throughout the year. 
Uh, so that's just to kind of keep you aware of that. We will be starting that again in about five to seven minutes. I thank you for being here. Everyone's allowed to stick around for the, the uh, business meeting. However, only board members, or I'm sorry, yeah, only members of the church are allowed to vote during that time. So thank you for being with us. Go in peace or hang out for the meeting in just a little bit.